I'm glad for the uh, young in our congregation. It's a good thing for uh, young people, even at, at a very young age, uh, to be in the worship of God's people, to be a part of the congregation. And, and I'm sure we would be surprised at how much they learn, uh, even when we're, we're not aware that they're learning it. So I'm really glad for the young ones in our congregation and uh, glad for your presence to encourage them. It's good for young people to see adults, especially significant people in their lives, uh, worshiping God, and that will make an impression on them. Uh, let me remind you of something you already know, that the Psalms are poetic language meant to be sung with music. We noted that in our, our call to worship, that uh, direction to the choir master seemed to in particular, uh, say that that psalm was meant to be sung by the congregation. And that means that there's always an emotional as well as an intellectual content to the psalms. Uh, now I know we tend to sometimes sort of uh, squelch our emotions, especially uh, in a church setting, uh, but the psalms are emotional. They're meant to stimulate your feelings. Uh, if, you, if you read a psalm and there's, there, you're, you don't have some kind of an emotional response, you haven't really read it yet. Uh, so, so please be sure to, to look for that. The psalms are not a systematic theology. They're not like a, a, a textbook you read like that. Uh, they're to be sung with joy or sadness, grief or triumph, peacefully or painfully. As we'll see in today's text, sometimes with anger as well. Uh, you're on meditation of the Psalms, I might uh, parenthetically say, uh, may, may well be helped by listening to music. Uh, people have set the Psalms to music. Uh, our friend uh, Karen Green has set a number of scriptures to music, and, and I'm glad to, to know there are, there are quite a few people out there now who are are setting the psalms to music of various kinds and would encourage you uh, to look, through, uh, look for that and uh, have your own experience, your own learning of the psalms enriched as you're helped to understand the emotional content of them. In this sermon series, the texts we're considering include passages from the Bible set to music by George Handel for his oratorial Messiah. And he has clearly sought to convey the emotions that rightfully go with those scriptures. And we have come today to a selection from Psalm 69 that is sung in this oratorio by mournful tenor voice, accompanied by sparse and melancholy tune. It's selection 29 in the Messiah. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was no man, neither found he any to comfort him. Now, as I mentioned in my, my uh, uh, weekly email, uh, to many of you in the oratorio, uh, this has been put into third person to match the other 
Other scripture passages, overall, the Messiah gives us a third-person view of, of Christ, but actually you'll see in our text, if you haven't already noticed, that uh, this is first-person. This is a first-person psalm. And, uh, and when you read a first-person psalm, that's a clear invitation for you to identify with the psalmist. Do your best to draw near to to that person, to to at least get an idea of what they might be going going through. And hopefully you'll find some points of resonance in your own experience, and you'll be able to have that that sense, that wonderful sense that that the scripture is, is in a miraculous way expressing what you feel. And that God is speaking to you personally through that. So look for that and look for the emotions as well. Uh, With that uh, said, let's turn to our text for this morning, Psalm 69. I'm going to read the entire psalm, uh, but we won't look in detail by any means at all of it. Uh, But let's hear this portion of God's word to us today. It is headed, has a heading like the psalm we used for the call of worship to the choir master, and so this too is a congregational, uh, congregational hymn, we might say, uh, composed according to the heading by David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. The dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gates. The drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, 
for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Perhaps your thoughts were gripped by the section beginning there in verse 22. Verses 22 through 28 are what we uh, refer to sometimes as an imprecation, as a cursing, as a calling down judgment of God upon sin. Uh, how do we pray this prayer? How do we sing this song? There are some, actually, who say we're not supposed to. <laughs> uh, they say this is sort of an Old Testament ethic we're not supposed to have anything to do with. Uh, they say that uh, in redemptive history, we've gotten beyond this point. Uh, we're, we're at a higher level which seems to me rather audacious to say you're a higher level than David, who is a man after God's own heart, but that's what they say. We should just sort of leave this out of our vocabulary, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I would suggest that 
that we realize that, that these imprecations, these harsh words, these angry words are inspired worship and they're revealing truth about God. It's always helpful to notice the context of a passage of Scripture, and I want you to notice the context of these imprecations. As I said before, we can't go through this entire psalm. It certainly merits a whole series in itself. This psalm is quoted in numerous places in the New Testament uh, and would bear... Uh, further study and much further contemplation than we can give it here. But I want, you, I want you to sort of go with me quickly through the first part of the psalm to notice the context in which these imprecations are placed. And you've already noticed it's a context that begins with a cry for help, a desperate cry for help. David is using imagery that would be very powerful for him. The Hebrew people were not we're not that familiar with water, okay? Uh, they weren't a seafaring people. They didn't have a water, lot of water in their land, and so to be caught in a flash flood in one of those wadis, which could happen, is a terrifying experience. So David says that's, that's what he feels like. He, he feels like that, that, that he's down in this ravine, and suddenly a flash flood comes, as could happen. You could sometimes have a flash flood in one of these wadis, and it's not even raining where you are because the water is coming from far upstream. And the water is rushing in, and it's up to his neck, and he can't get any foothold because, as you may have experienced in, in water at some point, you know, the, the, the ground under the water is just mud, and he, so he can't get a, a foothold, and so he's... He's in desperate straits, and he's been calling out, crying for help so long that his throat is dry. Sort of ironic, isn't it, that he's, his throat is dry with calling, crying out when he's drowning. He's in desperate, desperate straits. Have you ever been in desperate straits? Not physically, that it may be physically you've, you've been in a very desperate strait where you really wondered if you were going to get out of that situation alive. Have you ever been desperate emotionally? Have you ever felt overwhelmed emotionally and, and, and felt you, you, you just felt yourself going to pieces? Have you been overwhelmed spiritually? Have you... Have you succumbed to temptation and sinned and then had that devastating feeling of having failed God utterly? Just feel the waves of guilt rolling over you. And to make it worse, beginning at verse 4, are the enemies. Those who... Hate me, David says there in verse 4, without cause. Those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Not only, is, not only do you deal with that inner conflict that you may have spiritually, emotionally, that physical conflict you may have, but you live in a world with enemies. Now, in our particular circumstance, this is... 
might be a little more difficult for you to identify with, but there are Christians in this world who literally live in the place of enemies. For whom any moment in a time of worship, violent men may come in the door and kill God's people or come into their homes and kill them as they have many times in Nigeria recently. But even if you haven't experienced that physical, that physical threat, you know what it is to live in a world with enemies. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Look at verse 5. David acknowledges his own sin. He is not somehow saying he's better than everybody else. God, you know my folly. Folly in Scripture is, is there's always a moral component to folly. It's, it's a foolishness that's a moral foolishness because it, is a, because it is a folly that begins with failing to acknowledge the fear of the Lord. The wrongs that I've done are not hidden from you. I'm an open book before you. You know my sin. I might hide it from everybody else. You might hide your sins from everybody else, but you are an open book before God. He knows it all. And that leads David to, a, to really a, a godly concern that I, that I hope is ours, that I hope is yours. He's concerned that he not brings shame upon God's people. I love the fact that he, he has that concern. He's more concerned that he would bring disrepute on God's people than that he would bring it on himself. Do you care about the congregation of God? Do you care enough to... To be moved not to do things that would bring shame upon God's people. That's what David is saying. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse 7, It is for your sake, speaking to God, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. He is experiencing derision and he's being despised because of his faithfulness to God. It's alienated even him even from his own family. And what is it? What is it that they have so objected to? Well, it's zeal for your house. Zeal for your house has consumed me, he says. I am passionate about the house of God. Are you passionate about God's church? That's what's in view here, isn't it? God's people. Is the well-being of the church, God's people, your passion? If it is, then you're probably going to experience the reproaches that David talks about then. It's interesting how often that word comes up in this psalm, isn't it? Reproach. That scorning, that mocking, that despising that he is experiencing the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. He's identified himself with God, and so when God is reproached, he is reproached. And even his, even his humbling himself, even his devotion to God is mocked. You see that in verse 
10 and 11, well, and 12 as well, he's mocked for his concern for repentance and for humbling himself. But, verse 13, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. The, the idea is at your choice of time. Okay, at the time you choose, God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, your covenant love, your loving kindness, that, that's that word that we have to translate with a whole bunch of different words because there's so much packed into it. So it's steadfast love, loving kindness, enduring love, covenant love, faithfulness. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. I know you're always faithful to save your people. That's what he's saying. So deliver me, he says again, echoing the beginning of the psalm, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. That's an imagery of death, of course. Answer me, he continues to cry out in verses 16 and following, appealing again to God's steadfast love, to asking him to redeem him. Verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. Before he said that you know my sin, you know my, my guilt, but you also know what I'm suffering. That's what he's saying there in verse 19. You know all my enemies. You know that my heart is broken with reproach, that I am in despair, that there's no one. I have no one to take my side. And in fact, people return good for evil to me. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. All that leads up to, then, the imprecation. Okay, David's not praying for punishment on his enemies out of a vacuum, in other words. He's one who belongs to God. He was suffering, at least in part, because of his identification with God and his people. And it's out of that setting that he makes this imprecation. This, this may be a, an appropriate point to, to mention that the Psalms is not the only place that we see this kind of language. Don't get the idea that it's restricted here. I mean, we see it in a number of places. We saw it, see it very early in the biblical narrative when God curses the ground because of Adam's sin. That's an imprecation, right? Noah voices an imprecation against uh, Ham's son Canaan. Uh, covenant Yah law of Yahweh contained both blessings and curses. And in fact, you may recall that when the people came into the land of Canaan, they had that, that ceremony where half of the people stood on one mountain slope and half on the other, and one side recited the blessings and one recited the cursings. Those are imprecations against those who would violate God's law. And it's not only in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. Apostle Paul, Peter spoke imprecations against a woman 
named Sapphira against a man named Simon. The Apostle Paul declared God's judgment against a man named Alexander who had organized opposition to Paul's gospel preaching. In the close of a letter to the church of Corinth, Paul wrote, quote, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. Our Lord, come. Language of imprecation is found throughout the book of Revelation, where we see the those who have been murdered for their faith call upon God to judge our killers, their killers. And furthermore, our Lord himself on multiple occasions pronounced woes, which are a form of imprecation against the hypocritical elite who opposed him, and even went so far as to declare an imprecation against that entire generation. Luke eleven forty nine. Therefore, Jesus said also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You may even suggest that you've prayed prayer of imprecation today. It's been pointed out that the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is in reality a an imprecation. What will the coming of God's kingdom be but a time of judgment against all those who have resisted both actively and passively his kingship? What will the consummation of his will be but the eternal judgment of all who have lived according to their own wills rather than his? When you prayed, deliver us from evil, did you suppose that your deliverance would come by any means except the complete and utter crushing of your enemies? And when you concluded your prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, even saying amen to that prayer, did you not see that as a declaration that called down judgment against every being that wants to govern his own life, every creature that trusts in his own strength? every spiritual or earthly being that glories in his self-esteem. The prayer that your Lord taught you begins and ends with a heartfelt imprecation asking God, the only sovereign, to execute judgment on sin and establish his righteous rule. Perhaps that should lead us then to to notice that an important truth revealed by these imprecatory prayers is that when you pray in the name of Christ and in the Spirit, your prayer is centered on him and his rule, his kingdom. If you're a loyal subject of the King of Kings, then his will becomes your will. You're a soldier in his army. You desire to see his name honored, held holy, to see his rule extended through all creation. When God's will transforms your will, then your prayers will include your asking him to vindicate his holiness by cleansing his kingdom of sin 
and his kingdom encompasses everything. Love for God will move you to hate anything and everything that is against him. As Psalm 98 declares of creation, you will rejoice to see him coming to, quote, judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You prayed imprecatorily when you've sung these words. O quickly come, dread judge of all, for awful though thine advent be, all shadows from the truth will fall and falsehood die inside of thee. O quickly come, for doubt and fear like clouds dissolve when thou art near. Or these words, every eye shall behold him, robed in dreadful majesty, those who set it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing shall the true Messiah see. Every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away, all who hate him most confounded. Hear the trump proclaim the day, Come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come away. These prayers are prayers that God would be vindicated over his enemies, and that his rule would be established. But not only do these prayers identify you with God, they identify you with God's people as well. We noticed that concern earlier in the psalm, didn't we? So imprecatory prayers are inspired not only by love for God and for his holiness, but for those whom he has called as his covenant people. His enemies are their enemies, just like the enemies of a king are the enemies of his armies. And so in these prayers, we pray on behalf of God's people. Judgment is called for because of the sins of the enemies of God's people against them. This is not, this is not without foundation. In the context of our psalm, you notice that the enemies have hated the psalmist without cause. They've lied about him. They've sought to force him to restore what he did not steal. They have mocked him. They have sought his death. Now, you may not have experienced those, but there are Christian brothers and sisters in this world who have and who are right now experiencing that. Your imprecatory prayers are offered on behalf of them, not just yourself. It's not God's will that sin against his people should go unpunished. So by faith, let's not forget that, by faith, the psalmist prays for God to judge all those enemies. In that sense, these prayers of imprecation calling for God's judgment are sort of the other side of the coin of those prayers for the deliverance of his people. Because remember, we saw the deliverance of his people is tied intimately with the destruction of their enemies. So they're praying toward that final goal of his establishing his kingdom. And notice that that element of faith, which I mentioned a moment ago, it's faith that motivates these prayers. If David did not believe that God possessed the authority and the attendant 
power to judge sin, his prayer would be meaningless. But he knows, he believes that God has both the authority and the power to judge sin. And that leads to an important point. If you believe that God has the authority to judge sin, you know that you don't. You don't have that power in yourself. And so in a very real way, when David or when you pray these imprecatory psalms, entrusting God to hear your prayer and to judge on behalf of himself and his people, wickedness and sin, you are relinquishing your right to any revenge. See that? Don't miss that. To pray in precatory prayers in faith means you relinquish all your rights to personal revenge upon your enemies because you are trusting in the holy justice of God. You are believing that he can perfectly judge sin, including the sin committed against you in a way that you cannot. You're not smart enough, you're not powerful enough, and above all else, you're not good enough to avenge sins against yourself. But God is. And so you're choosing his will to judge sin in his time. Remember David's use of that word time. You're choosing his will to judge sin in his time and in his way rather than your own sinful inclination to get back at your enemy right now. Imprecatory prayers are the opposite of exercising personal vengeance, the opposite of taking the law into your own hands. Now, if you've understood that, then you also realize that when you pray an imprecatory prayer, that relies completely on God's justice for this circumstance you're thinking about, then you are actually freed to love your enemies as God loved you when you were his enemy. The world says, don't get mad, get even. That's the spirit of Lamech in Genesis, who boasted that he killed a man for wounding him. Avenging himself 77-fold, in other words, exacting complete revenge. That's the way of the world, to get back at those who wrong you. But the imprecatory Psalms say, God, say, get mad, get angry at sin, and leave vengeance to God where it belongs. As your example in this, we can think of David himself. Remember, David is anointed as king by Samuel, but he didn't ascend to the throne immediately. In fact, he spent the next years on the run constantly because Saul was trying to take his life. David, who prayed these these imprecatory prayers, was given multiple opportunities to kill Saul himself. And yet, instead of taking revenge on Saul, he showed Saul love instead, sparing his life and actually giving Saul the opportunity to repent of his 
wickedness against David. Even more to the point, of course, is Jesus' refusal to exercise vengeance against his enemies, praying instead for their forgiveness. And this leads us to the further observation that the imprecatory prayers that we find in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture are ultimately the prayers of Jesus. He is the only one. The only one who is righteous, the only one who is completely pure and able to pray these angry words in complete purity, just as he, with perfect righteousness, drove the vendors out of the temple courts. He, the only sinless human being, was given sour wine when he was dying and in thirst, so it is perfectly fitting that he pray that the feast of his enemies be turned into snares. He came to give people peace and was answered with violence so Jesus could rightly pray, when they are at peace, let it become a trap. He was motivated only by love and was met with hatred, so it is just for him to call for God's indignation and wrath to be poured on his enemies. He, as the perfectly righteous one, can pray for God's judgment against all sin. And we can even go further than that and say that because of his righteousness, we can know without a doubt that every one of these prayers will be answered in fullness, and all his enemies will be cast into hell. Now, David the psalmist and you are in a different position than Jesus, right? For mere human beings are not without sin. And so that leads us to note that to pray for God's judgment against sin is, in a sense, to invite judgment on ourselves, isn't it? We might call this the boomerang effect of imprecatory prayers. You probably noticed the the psalmist admitted as much in our text, O oh God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. When he says later, they persecute him whom you have struck down, there's the implication, I've been struck down by you in some sort of discipline or chastening. Is it wrong then for the psalmist or for you to pray for God's judgment against those who sin against him and against you as God's child? Now, the answer, of course, is no. And that's because of the relationship that the psalmist has, and that I pray you have, with God through repentance and faith. By God's grace, David has been brought to surrender, to repent of his enmity against God and cast himself on God's mercy. God has made one who is his enemy, his friend. He has made this rebel his child. He has made this sinner an object of his wrath, the object of his love. And, of course, this takes us right to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? That God in Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the wrath, the judgment 
the imprecations that you deserve. He has taken that upon himself. The prayers that God would judge sin are answered when the Messiah was judged for the sin of his people. What mercy and love we see here. Just think of it. We pray these imprecatory prayers. And they're answered as our sins are put on Christ. Surely this ought to move us to hate that sin, don't you think? To love the beauty and holiness of God, but to hate that sin. In fact, we probably need to pray against the sin in our own lives with every bit as much passion as we pray against the sin in this world, don't you think? And again, we can do that knowing that God himself has made atonement for that sin. He has borne the penalty of our sin, given us a love for him, a love for his people, his congregation. And a desire to see his kingdom extended. Or, of course, the, the wonderful way in which prayers of implication are often answered is that those enemies are defeated by grace, right? Just as we were defeated by God's love, surrendered surrendered our claim, surrendered our sin before him, and looked to him alone for salvation. May God grant that we are a people who, who grow in love and pray continually for his kingdom to come in our lives as well as the lives of others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that ultimately, we believe that ultimately, our prayers of imprecation against the sin in our own hearts and the sin that we see in this world are going to end as this psalm ended with praise. For what joy and happiness, what praise there will be when sin is dealt with. What praise and thanks we owe to you that sin, our sin, has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we ought, to, we ought to be a people of continual praise and thanksgiving every moment of our lives. Because you have borne our sin. And we, we look forward, Lord, with such anxiousness sometimes, with such desire sometimes for that that day when all sin will be judged and your righteous kingdom will be established, when there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more sighing, all that will be done away with. 
because sin has been judged. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in the meantime, to be faithful to your word, to be strengthened by you, to love and serve you and one another, and to demonstrate that love to even our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.